Go ahead and be seated. And uh, we want to pray this morning. Uh, last week we asked you to pray for some people and uh, Lynn Oldham's procedure went fine. The stent that he got and he's doing better. But uh, this week Danny Hudler is going to be having surgery and we need to pray for him. And then we've also got our students that are going to camp this week. Just curious, how many of you had an experience with the Lord, whether it was salvation or something like that, or maybe surrender to uh, some particular thing, or God really dealt with you. And how much of that? How many of you were teenagers when that happened? Let me just see your hands. I think quite a few of you. Uh, statistics show that most people that get saved get saved before the uh, age of eighteen. Uh, it just shows that there's something special about that time period where our students are and there's just something special about how God seems to work in their lives now I for one am thankful that's not the only time he works or I would be hopelessly and eternally lost that's all up in the hands of course of a sovereign God but it does seem unmistakable that that is kind of the pattern that he follows he works in the lives of young people and our prayer needs to be certainly that they would have a safe trip there and back. Certainly needs to be that they would have a good time while they're there. We want them to enjoy it. But above all, above all, that God might work in their lives. Some of them need to be saved. Some of them God may be calling to preach or calling them to missions or some type of service like that. Some of them may have sin in their life, and it may even be a generational sin that's been in their family for a long, long time, and it's time for it to be broken. It says the sins of the fathers are visited to the third and fourth generation. My prayer is it'll be the fourth generation, and that it'll be time for that to be broken, and that they'll come back on fire for the Lord for more than two weeks, right? Because that's what we experienced. And uh, that it'll be a life-changing thing that we'll be talking about when we're in heaven. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come with thankful hearts because you have answered so many prayers. We also come with burdened hearts. As we think about Danny and what he's going to be going through and Gail as she cares for him and the rest of the family, of course. We don't want to leave them out and friends and others. And we want to pray that you would help him and pray that you would be blessing the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and the nurses, everybody that's going to touch him even now, even now. And may they be well rested on top of their game and sharp and may your thoughts guide their thoughts, and may your hands guide their hands. And may it all be done to your glory and done well, and would you bring healing to him. And then may it also bring glory to you. And then we want to pray for our students. Again, Lord, we do pray for safety, both going and coming. We pray for safety while they're there. We pray they would have a great time. We pray that they would bond and build relationships and have good fellowship with one another. We pray that they would obey those who were in our authority. And we pray that they would get along well with one another.
But above all, Lord, we pray that those who are lost, you would call to salvation. We pray those who are saved would see the power of sin broken in their lives. And we pray also, Lord, that if it pleases you, you would call out some to preach the gospel, to go to a mission field, to do something like that. And Lord, we pray that as you do that, it would cause us one day in heaven to understand how important this ministry really is. And so we pray for the person who will be preaching and those who will be doing the music at the camp. We pray for the other churches who will be traveling there as well. Bless them as well. And then, Lord, um, we want to pray for Isaac and Jenny. And we want to thank you for them and pray that your anointing and your power and your wisdom, your grace, and indeed your strength, it's a hard week, would be upon them. And we pray that uh, all of them come back rejoicing. That would be our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus once again. And we're going to get to the point now to where God has uh, given Moses instruction about the tabernacle. And uh, it's interesting that we get this little interlude about building the tabernacle before Moses has even come down. He wants us, as he writes this book, to know about this and to know what God said and to know uh, a little bit about what happened. Kind of a, a prequel, maybe we would say, to uh, what happens later on. And um, the tabernacle. I think most people, when they think about a tabernacle, well, maybe you've seen a church there uh, used to be one around here named Tabernacle Baptist Church. I think maybe you uh, go back to camp. Back uh, when I went to Falls Creek, it was an open-air tabernacle is what they called it. Well, um, maybe we don't fully understand it or think about it like we should. And so uh, we're going to talk about it today. The tabernacle, building the tabernacle. What is it that God wants? What is it that happens and uh, understand that the real tabernacle that they're building was a tent. And it was a, uh, an unimpressive um, building or structure because it really wasn't a structure or much of one on the outside. But it was lavish and beautiful on the inside, as we will see. And it was a temporary portable worship center. Can you imagine having a portable worship center? You could set it up anywhere at any time, in any place. And it was used by Israel, of course, until Solomon built the temple. And that's what David meant when, uh, as king, he said, I live in a paneled house and the Lord lives in a tent. And so he wanted to build a temple for the Lord and the Lord said, no, not you, it'll be your son. And by the way, I don't live in tents or temples. I, uh, my, I'm present everywhere and I live in heaven above the universe. And um, so this is what they used for all of those years. Now, you know what impresses me? There were 40 years of travel in the desert. Extreme heat, difficult situations, tearing down, setting up, tearing down, setting up, tearing down, setting up. I don't think they make a tent that will last 40 years through all of that. But even more than that, after they got into the promised land, where was it that they worshipped during the book of Judges? 
if they worshipped, I guess we would say. Tabernacle. Who, uh, where was it that Samuel went and where Eli the priest ministered? It was the tabernacle. Where was it that David worshipped all those years later? It's at the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built until King Solomon. And so this is kind of an amazing thing. And uh, there may be some supernatural aspects to it as well. But it's impressive that what these ex-slaves did in the desert lasted for all of those centuries as a place of worship. And the word tabernacle is interesting because um, it's derived from a verb. We think of it as a noun, a thing. And yet it was derived from a verb. Originally, to tabernacle meant to visit, to dwell, to be among somebody. And uh, then, of course, after the building of this particular tent, it uh, became known more as a structure and the place where God dwelt with his people. Um, there when the glory of God fell upon it and uh, they met with God in the Holy of Holies. And the early tabernacle was a picture. We've talked about this or a type of several things in the book of uh, Exodus. And think about this. It's a picture, number one, of heaven. It's also a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and testifies of him. And it's a picture of the communion that we have with the Lord that we will experience uh, fully one day in heaven. But we have that opportunity now. You'll see different names in the Bible used for the tabernacle. Sometimes it's called the sanctuary. Sometimes it's called the tent, emphasizing its uh, temporary nature. Sometimes it's just simply called tabernacle, as we see in this passage today. And then other times it's called the temple, or I mean, pardon me, tabernacle of the congregation, symbolizing or thinking about emphasizing where they would meet, where they would gather for worship. And then it was also the tabernacle of the testimony. Testimony of what? Well, inside of it, they had the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on it, the testimony of the Lord. And so uh, sometimes it would be called uh, that. So don't let that confuse you whenever you're reading through the Bible, both Old and New Testament. There are different names that come up for uh, tabernacle. Okay, Exodus 25, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. So follow along in your Bible. And it says, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. Notice whose offering it is. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Weird offering, isn't it? Fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, that's what the high priest would wear, and the breastplate. 
And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. Yeah, I find some things as I read through that that got my attention, especially near the end. I'm going to show you the Lord said, you make all of this, you bring all of this stuff to make a pattern, a pattern. Uh, how many of you had moms that sewed? Did she ever go by a pattern first? I mean, I guess if you're really talented, you just cut it out and sew it up. But mom always would buy a pattern. And the pattern, she would have to take it out, cut it out, lay it out on the fabric, cut the fabric and all of that. And that told her how to sew to make whatever it was that uh, she made. And a pattern was not the real thing. She never wore the pattern. She never would say, look at my beautiful pattern. She would wear the real thing. The pattern just showed her how to do it. What does this mean when we talk about this tabernacle and the pattern thing? Did you know that the real tabernacle is in heaven and God was giving them a pattern of the real thing so that they might have something similar while they were here on earth? That in heaven, when we go to heaven, we're going to see this. And you think about the fact that in the book of Hebrews, it says that these things are copies of the original, of the real thing. God was just giving a pattern so that they would uh, be able to worship him the way he wanted to be worshipped. And so that leads me then to the first thing I want to say as I talk about building the tabernacle, but I'm really talking about worship. First of all, I want you to notice that worship is responsive. The Bible says here that this comes from the Lord. And we find this throughout the Bible about everything. It all initiates with God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, right? Speak to Israel that they may bring me an offering. And I was thinking that uh, so many, in fact, all of the other religions are basically man saying, this is how we're going to get to God. We're going to go to God. And God will surely be pleased with this. It's the offering of Cain, in other words. It's not acceptable to God. And uh, I thought about Israel with all of their experiences with God and with Moses and all of that. And they're going to do something that we'll see in a few chapters. While Moses is on the mountain, Israel is going to do the best they can to try to get to God. You know what the best they can come up with is? Golden calf. That's basically what man does. And whether it's Buddhism, whether it is agnosticism, whatever it may be, whatever false religion it may be that is apart from the gospel, it's a golden calf. That's about the best that they can come up with. And uh, that just speaks of human inability. God has to initiate this and God has to reveal this. I found out a long time ago that uh, if you're giving a gift to your wife on, the, on your anniversary, it usually works better to give her what she wants, right? Vacuum cleaner, not a good idea, right? Those kind of things just don't work. But if you give her what she wants, she's going to be 
very, very happy. Same thing with your kids at Christmas. You need to give them what they want or you're going to be a disappointed person when it comes to that. Well, that's the way worship is. God has very clearly in his word told us what he wants. And we're so busy trying to make it what we want, what appeals to us. And with all of that, all you end up with is a golden calf and nothing really else that matters and nothing of significance in there. It's uh, something that is very important to do what God wants. And so God is describing in all of this what was in heaven. And this earthly tabernacle was a copy. Hebrews 9.23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy, the holy places made with hands, like the earthly tabernacle or temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So all of that that you see down here and all that is recorded in the Bible is simply a picture of the real thing that Christ, after his death, burial, resurrection, then in his ascension, he went into the real holy place, into the presence of God, and put his own blood on the real mercy seat of God. And all of this is a picture, and God reveals some of this because the tabernacle is indeed going to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, number two, worship must be willing. If you're here today because somebody drug you in here, uh, I just want to say to you, I'm really glad you're here, and you're welcome here, and uh, it's a good thing that you are here. But don't pretend that you're worshiping because you're not. If you are not paying attention, your mind is wandering, I've even had uh, reports that some people, adults, 50 plus, look at Facebook while I preach. Don't pretend that you're worshiping. If you're singing the songs that we sang, and by the way, they were wonderful songs, and yet you're making a grocery list in your mind, or you're looking at what other people are wearing, or you're thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon or this evening, or you're worried or stressed out, you may be present, but you're not worshiping. Worship is something that comes when our hearts are willingly and freely and gladly surrendered to the Lord. It's when our eyes are upon Him. It's when we are focused upon Him. That's when we really worship. And notice that what God wants out of the people here is not just take an offering, Moses, and make sure they give a lot. They did, by the way, give a lot because later on Moses had to tell them to stop Boy, that'd be a nice problem, wouldn't it? Be nice instead of having a spending committee in a church. I mean, a, a finance committee in a church. You had a spending committee. What are we going to do with everything that the people have brought? Uh, that'd be a good problem to have. And they had that problem. But notice the Lord said, in this offering, I don't want people giving because they're afraid. I don't want giving, people giving this offering because they have to. I don't want people giving this offering because they feel like if they don't, God will burn their house down or something like that. Notice the words in there that he wants the offering to be something 
that is given by those who are giving it willingly. And they're giving it from the heart. You know, nowadays it seems like worship is state-of-the-art. Fog machines, lights flashing, technology, computers, all kinds of stuff. You know, the Bible would teach something a little bit different. It says that worship is not supposed to be state-of-the-art. It's state-of-the-heart. State-of-the-heart. Are we really worshiping? We can have emotional experiences and not worship. We can be impressed with what the speaker said. I hesitate to call some of them preachers. And uh, we can be impressed with the music. We can be impressed with all of that and yet still miss worship. And so as the Bible talks about this willingly and from the heart, next time you give to the Lord, next time you give your offering, think about that willingly, willingly and from the heart. And this is echoed, of course, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. You know this. Paul said, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how many people give cheerfully? How many people give willingly? And I notice that number three, when you think about this, it ties in with point number two. Worship reveals a lot about us. When you really stop and think, why are you here? What are you focused on? What is it that moves you? Is your heart really in this? Well, sometimes it's in gathering for worship like this, that you begin to see, maybe I'm not everything I thought. In fact, it's a good thing to be convicted of sin when you are in a worship service. It's a good thing when the Spirit moves. It's a good thing when God reveals where you are. And sometimes where you think you are and where you actually are, are uh, uh, they're different situations entirely, aren't they? And so God draws us in through this. And sometimes as you are fellowshipping with other people and as you are gathering with them to worship, sometimes you can look around and we're singing a song and uh, you are like, how many verses are there to this? How many times are we going to repeat this? And then you look over across the aisle and you see someone with tears streaming down their cheeks. And you realize the song touched them, and so your question is, Lord, why didn't that same song touch me? It's revealing. Sometimes the Word of God will penetrate somebody's heart, and there'll be people that will have a life-changing experience because of the Word of God, and you wonder, I didn't get anything out of that. What in the world is going on? It's, it's revealing. But I also thought about this, too. The gifts were to be given by people of a willing heart, which meant give it if you want to, and if you don't, don't. I wonder what it felt like to go to the tabernacle when it was finally dedicated and to see inside the breathtaking craftsmanship, the gold and all of these things that were there, and to stop and think, I gave nothing to that. Now, you could still enjoy the benefits of it, 
But it would, would it not be somewhat convicting to know that you really didn't have a part in it? It's revealing. Can you imagine, too, when you look through this list and uh, you see this is what God wants? Well, I want to give something. What's on sale? What's cheap? What can I get at the Goodwill store that I can bring in? I mean, nobody's going to know the difference. And can you imagine as you bring your offering to Moses and say, this is what I want to give. And then you see the person that is giving refined gold. And you look at that, and I know we're not supposed to compare ourselves with other people, but we always compare ourselves with other people. Can you imagine when you see someone giving their best to the Lord, a costly gift to the Lord, and you went cheap? Can you imagine how that would be? And I think there's a part of even gathering for things like Sunday school when you can share certain things. It's amazing uh, the things that come up and the things that you hear from other people that sometimes touch my heart and make me go, I should have done that. I should have done that. And then going to the, I'm going to do that. And from I'm going to do it to, Lord, give me the opportunity to do it. And the Bible says that's why we gather, Hebrews 10, 24, to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. This is all a part of our worship. It reveals to us, because we can think of ourselves pretty highly and think that we are pretty good folks until we begin to worship and we see what God has done for us. We see what God requires of us. We see what other people have done in their walk with God and how God is blessing them. And it stirs up something within us to where we desire that as well. And so... You think about all of these different things that God was wanting. And I thought about a couple of things. That first of all, this is going to be labor intensive. I mean, when you bring thread in and you're going to make a tent, somebody's going to have to work with that thread to make a structure. When you're bringing in ram skins and that kind of stuff, somebody's got to cut them, somebody's got to sew them, somebody's got to put them together. This is not going to be quick and easy and so they're not only giving of their possessions, but they're giving of themselves. And the best way to give yourself is to give your time. T-I-M-E actually spells L-O-V-E, doesn't it? And so uh, MacArthur in his study Bible says, um, when he talks about blue and purple and scarlet yarns, that these colors are produced by dyeing the thread, blue from a shellfish, Purple from the, you ready? Secretion of a murex snail. Okay, I think I'm bringing something else on that one. And crimson from powdered eggs and bodies of certain worms. Makes some of you squeamish, won't it? Which attach themselves to holly plants. Deriving different colored dyes from different natural sources demonstrates a substantial degree of technical sophistication with textiles and fabrics. And of course, Egypt had a great reputation for excellence in reproducing finely twined linens. And I'm just going to make a guess. They probably used their slaves in order to do that. And those slaves were able to take what they had learned in slavery and now all of a sudden they're able to apply it for the glory of God. 
And so these ex-slaves are going to make this out in the middle of nowhere out of all of these things that they have. Where'd they get all this stuff? Well, the Bible tells us when they left Egypt, by the time they got to that 10th plague, people were begging them to go. And you remember they were loading them down with stuff. So no doubt this is coming even from the spoils of the Egyptians. Uh, at least some of it was. And some of it had to be worked on and made there in the desert. You know, you'd have the job of go find the snails. Go find the worms and make something good out of all of that. It's really, if you think about it, pretty amazing that this ever got done and done by these people who were willing to do it. And number four, worship is fellowship. Fellowship, not only with one another, that's what we always emphasize, but the main thing is this morning, we are actually fellowshipping with the God of the universe. He is speaking to us through his word. And notice that the next phrase in the text says that I may dwell among them. I mean, who'd have thunk it? We might think about trying to get to God, but God coming to us? Is there anything like that in the world? Is there anything like that in any other religion? Most religions, you would say, are man trying to get to God. Christianity, the gospel, is God coming to man, that I may dwell among them. That's the love and the grace of God. And the pattern of the tabernacle and all of this, God said, just so you shall make it. In other words, don't vary from it. Don't change it. Don't improve on it. Don't try to make it easier. So many times as we serve the Lord, we look for an easy way. What's the easy way? What's the less time-consuming way? What's the, the, the way that won't really cause any kind of stress on all of this well God didn't do that when he called them to make the tabernacle he was calling for the best of their time the best of their craftsmanship the best of materials because he is worthy of our very best someone said one time if it bears his name then it is worthy of our best and so we think about the fellowship that we have with the Lord what is that worth to you what is that worth to me? And it shows up in the way that we worship. It shows up in the way that we give. It shows up in our attitude toward the things that we do for the Lord. And that is very, very clear. And I want you to think about something. Notice the difference between this and Genesis chapter 11. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. People there said, we're going to build a, ta a tower and it'll be so tall, we're going to build it and um, we're going to get to the heavens. In other words, that was man's way of trying to get to God. And of course, sinful man trying to get to God, you can't enter into God's presence. And God wouldn't allow them to even think that they did. So uh, that whole thing fell apart when God gave the curse of language. When I was taking Hebrew, I remember one day I was in class... And the professor started talking, and I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Galeotti said, this contradicts what we learned on Monday. Why? And he goes, why, Mr. Keenan? Have you never read the book of Genesis? That's pretty much how I sounded. He said, language is a curse. And today, the curse gets worse. Right? Well, that's what happened. That was man's attempt to get to God. Futile. Confusing divisive, all of that. But you find in this chapter the amazing grace of God.
as God says to Moses, here's what I want. Here's how you do it. And why are we doing this, Moses? Why do you tell the people? Why do you take this offering? And here's the key. It was in that last verse we looked at. That I may dwell among them. Today, if you're trying to get to God, that's an exercise in futility. You're on a treadmill that leads to nowhere. But here's the good news. God came to us. And God indwells us if we've repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. And we don't have an earthly sanctuary. Well, yeah, we do have an earthly sanctuary. You know what it is? It's not here. It's here. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is where God tabernacles with us. And he's made you a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. Somebody say amen to that. So think about the tabernacle. It testifies of heaven, of the real stuff. It testifies of Christ. And every piece and everything in it talks about the gospel and the Son of God who gave his life for us as a sacrifice. And it talks about the fellowship, the communion that we have with the Holy Spirit, with God himself. And because of that, we have fellowship with one another. And we indeed, as the people of God, love one another. So it's going to be an exciting time as we look through these things and we study more out of the tabernacle. But for now, for now, think about it. The worship is to be willing. How willing are you? The worship is supposed to be something that uh, we look at and it reveals who we are and what we are. What are you doing with that? Just pushing it aside and walking out the door the way you came? Or is there a change that is taking place in your life today? And worship is fellowship with God. Has he spoken to you through his word? Is he drawing you close to him? Is he disciplining you when you fall into sin? All of that is evidence of his love. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you today to remind us of your grace and of your love in coming to us. When we couldn't get to you, you came to us. Thank you for that. Thank you for salvation in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That he took the wrath of God in our place and gives us the righteousness of God and gives us eternal life. Pray for those who haven't trusted you that they might. Pray for those who have that they might grow deeper in their worship of you. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.